Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. today's teaching is Matthew 2 verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. For those of you I haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Tyler Page, and I get the honor and the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Frontline South. And before we go any further, Merry Ninth Day of Christmas. For those of you, if, if that greeting seems strange, you're all right. For most of my life, the only thing I knew about the 12 days of Christmas was that on the first day of Christmas, your true love was supposed to get you a partridge in a pear tree. And then it went on and on. But the truth is that while for many of us, Christmas begins and ends on December 25th, for most of the church history, we've actually taken 12 days to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus. The 12 days of Christmas begins on December 25th when we celebrate the birth of Jesus and the nativity, and then it continues on until January 6th, the final day, which is a day called Epiphany. Epiphany. And it's where we, we celebrate the revelation of who Jesus is. And traditionally, we, we celebrate that through the reading of the story that we oftentimes refer to as the story of the three wise men. Now, the story of the three wise men, what an iconic story. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in or outside of the faith that doesn't have some passing knowledge of the three wise men and the gifts they bring to the child Jesus even those who have never read the story from Matthew or even cracked open a Bible 
have probably seen a nativity displaying the three wise men and their gifts or have heard the, the carol, We Three Kings. But it is often the, the case when cherished biblical stories become part of our popular culture, oftentimes our understanding of those stories and their place in redemptive history become more shaped by culture and our own misunderstandings than what scripture actually says. To quote my good friend and fellow pastor Aaron Addison, we three kings of Orient were not Oriental, they weren't kings, and they weren't three. For the note takers in the room, I've titled my sermon today, A Tale of Two Kings. And I know what some of you are thinking. That's an awfully strange title for a sermon about the three wise men, especially when he just got done telling us they weren't kings. There is a method to my madness. One of the first misconceptions I want to address is the misconception that this story, or that Matthew's intention, is to introduce us to the three wise men. The three wise men are not the heroes of this story. Jesus is. Matthew wants to draw our attention to and introduce us to the one who the three wise men are seeking. Jesus, the one born king of the Jews. Now, in order for us, though, to understand the wise men and their role in this story and in the story of redemptive history, we need to take a step back and, and ask the question, who are these wise men? If we look back at our passage in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, we read that, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, the word we translate as wise men in the Greek is actually the word magi. And if that word sounds familiar, it's because it's where we get the word magic from. And the title of magi, or the word magi, is used here more as a title than a descriptor. These are not just merely wise men. God didn't just throw a star in the sky and these were the only guys smart enough to figure it out. And so they claimed the title of the wisest man in the room. But rather the title of magi, or the term magi, is a title given to a specific group of people. These men were priests of the Persian area. More specifically, these were men who specialized in astrology and the study of dark magical arts. In the Old Testament, this term is used to, is, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, this term is used by the magicians who that the kings of Egypt and Babylon would call upon to interpret their dreams and perform miracles for them. So as you can imagine, the Magi may not have been kings, but these guys aren't just mere commoners either. Think about it this way. When the king wants to interpret the will of the gods, these are the men he calls in and he listens to. When a king of Babylon, such as King Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream that he feels has prophetic importance for his kingdom, these are the men he calls in to try to interpret it. Their position as the spiritual 
advisors for the kings of Persia and Babylon and Egypt gave these men incredible power, weight, and authority in the ancient world. So as we watch these men enter into Jerusalem, we're not watching just a a personal pilgrimage of a few wise men, but rather, more likely, we are seeing a royal delegation who has come to pay homage to and earn the favor of this child that has been born king. And so let's break this down for just a minute. These these magi, these pagan priests, have seen the star rise in the east, or there in the east, they see it rise in the west. And somehow, whether through access to Old Testament prophecies or just divine inspiration, they rightly conclude that the Messiah, the long-awaited king of the Jews, has been born. They've traveled to Jerusalem pursuing him, and in declaring and asking, where is this child who's born king of the Jews? They are actually declaring to all the people of of Jerusalem that their long-awaited Messiah has been born. The Messiah that they've been waiting for for well over four centuries now has come. Surely all of Jerusalem is going to explode in joyous celebration. Surely the priests are going to call a high holy day and the scribes and the Pharisees are going to proclaim joyously in the streets, come, see the Messiah. Well, not exactly. You see, I I told you that this is a story of two kings. The verse we just read tells us that these events took place during the days of King Herod. This is referring to a man by the name of Herod Antipas. And let me just say, this is one crazy guy. Now, One thing to to take note of is that although Jesus was born king of the Jews, Herod was not. In fact, Herod wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomite who had seized the throne by force with the help of Roman support. And as the king of the Jews in name only and not by birthright, he fought to hold on to that throne through this curious mix of public works, and cruel tyranny. He's often referred to in history as Herod the Great, because in his day he was considered an architectural genius who did huge building projects. One of his most famous building projects was actually the restoration of the temple, which is why you'll sometimes hear the temple referred to as Herod's Temple. And although Herod's temple never met the grandeur that Solomon's temple had, it was by far more glorious than any of the other temples that had been built from Solomon's time, after Solomon's time until now. And the boon that this brought to the morale of the Jewish people, to their spiritual and emotional well-being, can't be overstated. King Herod also Made, built several pools in and around Jerusalem that brought clean water 
to areas of the city that had not had access to clean water before. These pools also staved off drought and, and famine. So in many ways, Herod used his genius, this skill that he had in building and architecture to make life better for the Jewish people. But sadly, he would also become known as a tyrannical and paranoid leader who would tax the people with a crushingly heavy tax in order to curry favor with Rome and became so paranoid that someone was going to take his throne The history tells us he murdered his favorite wife. He had 10, but he murdered the favorite one, along with three of his own sons, because he was afraid that they would try to take the throne from him. His paranoia became so well known that the Roman emperor Augustus, who considered himself a friend of Herod's, once said it was better to be a pig in Herod's house than a son, because Herod, having converted to Judaism, wouldn't slaughter a pig, but obviously he had no problem slaughtering his son. Things do not bode well for this child who's just been declared the one born king of the Jews. Now, Matthew has chosen this story out of a whole host of stories about Jesus that he could have picked. And this is one of the few stories that Matthew's chosen to tell us about the early life of Jesus. There's obviously something in this story that Matthew wants us to see and to understand about who Jesus is. Namely, I think he wants us to understand that long before Jesus held the title of rabbi or prophet, or miracle worker, he held the prophet of king, or he held the title of king. And that has implications for us. That should mean something to our lives. But the book of Matthew, as scripture, also has a divine author. And I think that there's something God wants us to see about ourselves as we, we read through the story. And so what I would like to ask you to do is I'm about to go back through the passage. And as I do, I would like you to try to imagine yourself in the streets of Jerusalem on that day so long ago when the Magi came to town. Try to put yourself in the shoes of Herod, of the people of Jerusalem, of even the Magi, And ask yourself, if I was there, what would have my role in the story have been? Where would I have found myself as these events unfold? Let's let's look and see what happens. Going back to um, Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is Christ to be born? 
they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child of his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So the stage is set. On one side, you have Jesus, the one born king of the Jews. On the other, you have Herod Antipas, the false king currently on the throne. And in between them, you have the wise men, the people of Jerusalem, and the Magi, along with the, the, leader, the religious leaders, the priests and the scribes. And I have to say, reading this story it's hard to believe that the citizens of Jerusalem have been eagerly awaiting the arrival of their Messiah. Now make no mistake, nobody was confused about what the arrival of the Magi meant. At this time in Jewish history, anticipation and longing for the Messiah was at an all-time high. There were Old Testament prophecies in the book of Daniel that pointed to this exact moment in history as the moment that the Messiah would be born. And even if you weren't a faithful student of Scripture, as a Jewish person, you've been conditioned your whole life to long for and to welcome the Messiah. For generations, the people of Israel have been waiting for their Savior. The point I'm trying to make is you would have to be incredibly dense or willfully blind to see this delegation, this royal delegation come in asking where the, the king of the Jews has been born and not know the messianic implications. And yet, we see no joy amongst the people of Israel. We see no attempts for them to join the Magi in their quest. No effort to go and seek out their long-awaited king. Rather, they do the cost-benefit analysis and compared with the, the evil ruler sitting on the throne, they decide that the Messiah is more of a liability than a savior. The truth is, they would rather appease Herod, their false king, than risk his ire by seeking after their true one. And they're, they're not without some legitimate concern 
although we didn't read it today because it's beyond the scope of what I want us to focus on, the book of Matthew goes on to tell us that when Herod finds out the, or the Magi have deceived him, he goes on to slaughter every single boy born in Jerusalem two years or younger, or I'm sorry, in Bethlehem two years or younger in an effort to eradicate the Messiah. The priests and the scribes, though, are just as disappointing. These are the teachers of the law. These are the priests of Yahweh. They are the ones that have been entrusted with all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah and been tasked with preparing his way by teaching them to the people. You could say that these men are the true magi of the God of Israel. And yet, once again, we see no effort on their part to seek after Jesus or to join the Magi in their quest. And what's even more concerning to me is we don't really seem to see any fear in them as well. Matthew makes a point to tell us that the people of Jerusalem are troubled at the news that Herod is concerned but he doesn't say anything like that about the scribes and the Pharisees. If these men are worried about what Herod's going to do, they give no indication of it. But rather, what I think we're seeing here is not a lack of joy born out of fear, but rather one of cold, indifferent apathy. They just don't seem to care. What a contrast the Magi present on the other hand, though. Here we have these pagan priests. They are not followers of Yahweh, the God of Israel. They have not been waiting their whole life for God's promises to be fulfilled. And while I believe their view of who Jesus is will change by the end of the story, at the time they leave their home to travel to Jerusalem, Jesus is not their king. And yet with little more than a star to guide them, they leave their home, they travel hundreds of miles over a journey that probably took months to complete. And diligently and eagerly they seek after Jesus in the, city, in the streets of Jerusalem, in the courts of Herod, and finally in the small town of Bethlehem which is the last place a royal delegation would have ever expected to find a king. And then, when they finally come to the house where Jesus is staying, Scripture tells us that they are filled with great and exceeding joy. I like the translations that says, they are overjoyed. I have three small kids, and if, you have small kids or if you've been around small kids, you've seen that moment where a child will become so excited they just can't talk or sometimes they can't even move. They just kind of shake. That's the feeling I get as I read this. As they come and they see the house where Jesus is staying, the son of a carpenter, there would have been nothing about this house grand or splendid. As they see it, they're overjoyed that they have found the one born king of the Jews. 
And my favorite part, coming into the house and seeing the child with his mother Mary, not Jesus the powerful teacher or Jesus the miracle worker or Jesus the resurrected Savior, but the child, weak and frail, with his mother. They bow down and worship him. In the end, these pagan priests of Jesus more faithfulness than his own people. If you continue reading on in the book of Matthew, you're going to see Jesus take 12 men and spend three years trying to drill into their heads what these pagan priests realized in just moments, that he was their king and their God. As I wrap up, I asked you as we began to read this passage to try to put yourself in the shoes of those who experienced it, to imagine yourself there and and ask yourself, what part would you have played? And if you're like me, you want to say that you'd be with the, the Magi, that upon hearing the great news of Christ's birth, you would have dropped everything to follow them to Jesus' home. And seeing Jesus, you would have bowed down in true worship. But I'm fairly confident that if I was there, I wouldn't have followed the Magi. I'm fairly confident I would have sided with Herod and the people of Jerusalem and the religious leaders. And I think that if most of us are honest with ourselves, I don't think there's very many people in this room that would have made a different choice. You see, if you've been coming to Frontline long, we talk about how all of Scripture points to Jesus. And that's just as true of the Old Testament as the New. The Old Testament is like this mural that's painting a picture of Jesus, the, the king, the, the anointed savior of his people. But the whole time it's painting that picture of Jesus, it's also painting a picture of us, the people he came to save. And the painting it, the picture it paints is not a pretty one. While we all want to believe that we as human beings are basically good, just trying to do the right thing if we can figure out how, ready to, to fall at God's feet in true worship if he would just show himself to us. The picture scripture paints of humanity is that of a stiff-necked and rebellious creation, willing to seat just about anything and anyone on the throne of our hearts except for our true king and savior, Jesus. As I look back over my life, I can say with confidence this has been true of me more times than it hasn't. I have been Herod, too afraid of losing power to care about who I hurt. Some of you know me well enough to know that before I was, long before I was an elder here at Frontline South, I was a pastor of a small church plant. And now, I don't know where things went wrong. I don't know at what point it stopped being about serving God and loving his people, and it became about holding on to this tiny little kingdom of sand that I had built. But I know that 
just like Herod murdered his wife in order to keep his throne. By the time we shut the doors, I had almost crushed my wife in my pursuit of my little kingdom. I've also been the people of Israel. I have served lesser kings and let them rule my heart out of fear. King money promises a lot. And let's not be naive. He delivers. Just like King Herod, he delivers to a point. And King Money is perfectly okay with you having a relationship with Jesus up to a point. The King of Money doesn't have any problem with Rabbi Jesus, and he really loves self-help Jesus. Just go look at any book, store shelf. But then King Jesus comes along and says some crazy things, like, you can't serve two masters you're going to love one and hate the other. You can't serve God and serve money. And then King Money rears up and says, follow me and I'll take care of you. Turn your back on me and your children will starve. And you become troubled. And so you work harder. You become busier. You scheme and you worry and you become so wrapped up in pursuing the dollar that just like Jesus warned, you completely turn your back on him. And King Money's just one of many kings. There's the king of sex and the king of fame and the, the king of glory and of power. I could go on and on. This world is full of lesser kings who all promise the world, and sometimes they deliver, but they exact a heavy tax. But in, in my estimation, the saddest characters of all in this story are the religious leaders. And I've been there too. So confident in their own piety and comfortable in their position, they could not see their need for a savior or the gracious invitation before them. There was a time in my life where I was so blinded by my own self-righteousness that I actually believed I was serving God as I was trying to usurp his throne. And over time, I became more bitter and more angry as I saw who I considered to be lesser men and women, sinners, enjoy the fruits of a relationship with God and an intimacy with Jesus that I desired. The whole time, not seeing that I was actually scorning the love of my Savior, and the invitation to intimacy that he was offering. And as I conclude, this is my great fear today. I am afraid that you will walk out of here today and you will hear me say, go and be like the Magi. And if that's what you take away from this passage today, then I have failed you. This passage is not a lesson on how to be a better magi. It is an invitation. It's the same invitation that was extended to the magi and to King Herod and to the people of Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the priests. It is an invitation to come and to worship at the feet of your true king, Jesus.
But it's more than that. It's not an invitation just to come and worship at his feet, but it's an invitation to come and to sit at his table. Not as a slave or a servant, although that is more than we deserve. But it's an invitation to come and to sit at his table as a son and as a daughter. And it's an invitation afforded to us because 2,000 years ago, in the little town of Bethlehem, the high king of heaven, who was in his very nature God, took on human flesh. He traded a crown of glory for a crown of thorns and a throne in heaven for our executioner's cross. He who knew no sin died a sinner's death so that a rebellious creation like you and I could sit at his father's table as sons and daughters. If you're here today and you would not call yourself a Christian, but you've heard the claims of Jesus, and you would say, I'm ready to believe that Jesus existed, that he, he's real. I'm even ready to believe that he is God and that he died for my sins. But I don't know if I'm ready to call him Lord. Friend, I am really glad you're here. But if the cross and the cradle is not enough to convince you that he alone is worthy of the crown, I don't know what more I can offer you. So I'll simply plead. Come to Jesus. I've been there too. I know the lie that whispers in your ear that says, I don't know if I can really trust him. But let me tell you, there is no king like Jesus. Every other lesser king this world has to offer will promise you the world and demand your life. Jesus is the only king who ever laid down his life so that you could have life more abundantly. And if you're here today and you would, you would call yourself a Christian, you would say that, Tyler, there was a time in my life where I bowed my knee to God in true worship, but it's been a long time since I've served him and honored him as Lord. I've been there. And I can say with the confidence that comes from experience, your seat is still waiting for you at your father's table. In a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I would plead with you, don't let fear or pride keep you at the door. Come running to your father's table. Repent, eat and drink with confidence knowing that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, friends, will you stand with me and let me pray over you? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray and I thank you that you have extended the most glorious of all invitations the invitation to, to know you and to be a part of your family. And so I pray for those who, like the Magi, feel that they are far off. They don't feel like they are one of yours. 
Holy Spirit, will you just come and open their eyes to see their Savior? Will you grant them the gift of faith? And I pray for my brothers and sisters who feel distant from you in this moment. They've let the lesser things of this world creep in and create barriers in their own heart. Holy Spirit, will you tear those barriers down and as we take part in the Lord's Supper, will you draw them home in repentance and faith? Lord, I ask these things in the name of your son's holy name. Amen.